Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of February 17th, 2020. On the show today, news, listener questions, and y'all seem to love the Disney Institute. In our main segment, Jim gets us ready for the opening of Epcot's Regal Eagle Smokehouse with the story of the Liberty Inn and original Epcot restaurants. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks, if a poison is past its expiration date, is it more poisonous or less poisonous? It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? That makes me think about the old Jay Leno joke that if you, you look at the expiration date on a pack of Twinkies, it actually says, hey, pal, you should live so long. <laughs> Is it, are there really expiration dates on Twinkies? I know, there, I know there are, but it was a running joke in the first Zombieland, right? Double tap circles back on that at some point. But yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, they, they are they're... an impressive pseudo food and the nice thing is what you don't use you can use to cock your house speaking of uh, durable foods i stumbled upon somehow on youtube <laughs> a set of videos on food for the apocalypse so like canned bread and canned chicken like a canned whole chicken <laughs> and canned cupcakes look it up on on youtube Mm. You get a chance. <laughs> it's, it's, it's both fascinating and scary at the same time. I wouldn't recommend it right before dinner or right before bed. Okay. Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Julie D, Abuck, and Eric H, and longtime subscribers, Emmy at Brown, Logan M, and Josh M. Jim, the thing that all of these folks have in common is that they each lived in the tiny space capsule room inside the Mission Space Building at Epcot. You know the big rotating wheel where you can look inside in the, while you're in line? Mm-hmm. College program housing was tougher back then, Jim, but it taught <laughs> these kids how to brush their teeth upside down, and that is an important life skill. This is my favorite part of the show. Jim, let's do the, uh, the news. Speaking of the varied life experiences that our listeners have had, I think it's safe to say that neither you nor I expected so many of our listeners to have actually tried the Disney Institute. I got dozens of emails from people who did all kinds of classes. I think you got the same, right? Yeah. It was kind of, of eye-opening. It was one of the most popular topics we've ever had. Alicia wrote in to say, they've been among the very best professional development experiences in my 20-plus year career. Robbie said, I've never attended a more enjoyable, informative, and interactive training session, and I hope that my company continues with it. Jim said, there were so many fantastic customer service points that I got to bring home. It was definitely worth the money. Jennifer wrote in to say, all the Disney Institute classes have been transformative with regards to how I do my job. Uh, by the way, Nicole, who's from, what's the, what's the institute that? Uh, Chautauqua. Chautauqua. Thank you. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. pronounce it. Nicole okay. is from Chautauqua, wrote in with another piece of information about the Chautauqua Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, side note, and you might already know this. Michael Eisner's wife was from Jamestown, which is basically next door. And that's why he was in Chautauqua to begin with. That would kind of explain why that's where we're going. We're getting as far away from Burbank and I I know the place. She knows all the uh, the woodland trails. All right. Mm -hmm. So, Jim, the best story I think we got was from our own Mike Scabetta, who called me, uh, by the way, quite early in the day, I might add, before I had my, my morning constitutional martini, to say that he actually worked at the Disney Institute and loved it. So he, uh, he tells this story. He apparently, Mike said, Disney Institute was once hosting the actor Andy Garcia. And they were going to do a Q&A with Andy prior to screening the film Godfather 2, which Andy was in. Mm-hmm. So apparently Andy was running a few minutes late from a dinner and they had to start the film without him. So he gets out of the, his car that's dropping him off, 
realizes that there's a bunch of people just getting there that have also missed the beginning of The Godfather 2. So in the lobby, he acts out all of the parts of all of the scenes in the first 20 minutes that they've all missed to bring everyone up to speed on, on what's going on. Then they all go in and watch the rest of the film. And Jim, that's all I ask when I show up late for a film, is that Andy Garcia brings me up to a speed by doing all of the parts. Okay. I, I just want to clarify here that I would exempt Knives Out and say any of the Saw movies. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Finally, Jim, uh, uh, listener Bill said that, reminder, DVC members get a 20% discount while AP holders get a 15% discount on Disney Institute classes. I don't know how they're not a sponsor at this point, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> okay. All right. A couple of other news points. Uh, Jim, Disney has extended Hollywood Studios Park Hours. In March, uh, now the park opens at 8 a.m. The first two weeks of March, probably, I'm guessing, to the account for the popularity of Rise of the Resistance and no doubt the opening of Runaway Railway. Jim, I think Disney is pleasantly surprised with what's going on uh, attendance-wise at the studios. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Normally, isn't there kind of a step down? I mean, we do have all of the February school vacations that go on in the Northeast, so that mm -hmm. those artificially bump up attendance. But that's the latter part of February, isn't it? It depends on uh, on where the holidays fall. President's Day is usually pretty good for the east coast of the country. Mm -hmm. Around Mardi Gras, you get a lot of people from Louisiana, so you'll see a, a lot of people wearing purple and yellow. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's been, I think, busier than we anticipated at, uh, at the studios, and I think Disney's feeling the same thing, too. Yeah, That's good. Okay. Speaking of Runaway uh, Railway, Jim, we learned last week that the cue music for the ride is going to feature the theme song from the Potato Land cartoon, my favorite <laughs> of the new Mickey Mouse shorts. And recall that I've said now for two years, that if Runaway Railway has a Potato Land t-shirt in the gift shop, that I would wa wash director Paul Rudish's car. I may be in the market for a bucket and some soap. That's all I'm saying. All right. I got, I'll come hold the hose. <laughs> you won't suffer alone. Speaking of Rise of the Resistance, I did a really interesting technology test in the studios over the last couple of days, mornings mm. and afternoons. I went over to the studios and I tested the network speed. That you get Because one of the most common questions we're getting on the show is, should I use Disney Wi-Fi or my cell phone carrier to get a boarding group for Rise of the Resistance? And then where should I be within the studios if mm -hmm. I'm using Disney's Wi-Fi? So apparently in the last couple of days, Disney's start um, cutting off access to the remote corners of the park. So you're basically only allowed all, uh, along Hollywood Boulevard, parts of Sunset Boulevard, and, and a little bit up towards the, the Chinese um, theater. But uh, here's what I did. Mm -hmm. I brought a laptop and a couple of phones to the studios in the morning and in the afternoon. And I ran a bunch of network speed tests on it. Uh, as far as I can tell, the fastest network speeds to access Disney's servers are through Disney's Wi-Fi. And at Disney's Hollywood Studios, the fastest Wi-Fi access point now seems to be near the, you know, the Crossroads kiosk, just mm -hmm. past the park, right there. So if you think of Mickey as a, as a giant network antenna, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mickey on top of the crossroads. That's uh, that's pretty much it. I will note a couple of things. One, uh, although the Disney Wi-Fi is like four times faster than your cell phone signal, the at some point everybody's request is going to make it to Disney's servers. I believe they're in a an Amazon Web Services facility in Oregon. At some point, those handful of servers are going to be slammed with thousands of requests. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it becomes a lottery, right? The way that Disney's software distributes all of those boarding requests across a few dozen computers can vary. It could be something simple like a round robin. It could be something super sophisticated in terms of load balancing. But you always run the chance that whatever server you got to 
happen to run slower than the other servers that Disney's using. There's nothing that you can do to control that at that point. Again, it's just a lottery. But I think that's the reason why you see some boarding group requests sent via cell phone carrier end up with a lower boarding group number than those set on Wi-Fi. Because at some point, even if you're on the fastest network, you're basically down to things you can't control uh, within Disney's network. So Makes sense. It does. Uh, and I'd like to thank the uh, the unnamed Disney network technician who gave me a set of private IP addresses to ping to check for that. Thank you very much. Uh, Jim, ticket prices went up this past week. In Walt Disney World, the cheapest ticket is still $109. The most expensive is still $159. Um, but it looks like most dates throughout the year saw an increase of a couple dollars within those ranges. And I think uh, annual passes went up as much as 6.5%. Mm-hmm. Over in Disneyland, they're now using a five-tier pricing structure with one-day one-park tickets at 104, 114, 124, 139, and $154 for adults. Jim, any comment on that? For me, it's been fascinating to sort of watch the social media because it's become such a predictable thing that Disney raises its prices annually. There were a whole bunch of folks who reached for the torches and the pitchforks, and everyone's like, yeah, it's Disney. They're raising their prices. What a surprise. Yeah, it's nothing new. In yeah. uh, February seems like a common time to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it was all pretty straightforward. I will note uh, that uh, a Disneyland one-day park hopper has gone from around $100 in like 2011-ish to mm-hmm. $200 in the span of nine years. Yeah. Uh, so that's an annual compound increase of around 7.5%. Mm-hmm. I note, Jim, that if park hoppers were an asset class, like stocks and bonds, mm-hmm. they would have outperformed both international stocks and high-grade U.S. bonds <laughs> over that time period. <laughs> Some investment advice in case, you know, you want to diversify your portfolio. One day, one day park hoppers in Disney. Okay. 7.5% annually. <laughs> if you work the math, remember, uh, it wasn't until 2012 that the final phase of the first redo of California Adventure happened and or was completed. And now here we are. In fact, I don't know if you saw the Orange County Register article that broke just last week, but they are already talking about, well, what happens to Hollywood Studios or the Hollywood backlot area at California Adventures after the Avengers campus opens. You got to pay for these somehow. So I don't think that we've reached the top yet. Oh, no, I don't think so, no. Yeah, so. All right, Jim, uh, on to uh, listener emails from Steve. Would you please offer your touring plans advice for deciding on which of the new Tier 1 Fast Passes at Hollywood Studios one should select to efficiently tour from rope drop onward? All right, so remember, Jim, we talked about this, mm-hmm. that the Tier 1 Fast Passes are changing. They're going to be Slinky Dog, Millennium Falcon, and Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Eventually, when Rise of the Resistance starts running more reliably, it'll probably be added to Tier 1 as well. All mm-hmm. right, so for right now, you've got those three, right? You've got Slinky, Falcon, and Runaway Railway. My suggestion um, would be to try to get a fast pass for Slinky or Runaway Railway because they're family friendly and so you'll have more competition for those versus thrill rides. Plus, you can also single rider Millennium Falcon. So that's uh, that's always an option. Whatever fast pass you don't get between Slinky and Runaway Railway, head immediately to that ride as soon as they let you get on Disney's Wi-Fi and get a Rise of the Resistance boarding group. Once the park officially opens. Also, don't forget that there's a fast pass refresh trick for day of fast passes where you can go into My Disney Experience and keep trying different combinations of times and attractions. And occasionally, My Disney Experience will show you things using one set of filters that it won't show you 
using another. So hmm. FastPass refresh trick helps out there too. But that's what I'd say. You know, it's probably going to be the most valuable or Slinky or, or Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. We'll know in a couple of weeks once they once everything opens. Absolutely. From Matt, uh, who writes, Hi, Jim and Len. I just listened to the podcast about the hidden room 8347 at the Riviera Resort, and I have a possible explanation. So uh, Matt goes on to say that he uh, he was on a flight to Orlando. It uh, kept getting delayed. He ended up at 3 a.m. at Animal Kingdom uh, Lodge and asked the front desk if there's anything that they could do to accommodate him for the next couple of hours because he wasn't ready to check in. Apparently, some resorts have these things called napping rooms that are rooms that aren't used for regular guests. They're used in situations like this. So he said he got in at 4 a.m. The only requirement was he had to be out of the room by 11 a.m. and that he thinks most hotels have it available. So if you ever get stuck at a Disney hotel at three o'clock in the morning and you need a place to stay, ask if they've got a, a napping room available. If you're exhausted on your Disney World vacation, I just say, excuse me, where is the napping room? Exactly. <laughs> My plans for the next trip to Orlando have just changed seismically. <laughs> every night, every night, you're just going to wander in a hotel after midnight and be like, hey, just need a nap- napping room. I will note that the, the DVC resorts do have those rooms that you can tour, and probably no one's touring them between midnight and 7 a.m. That could well be. Again, the only problem there is that trying to get that mint off of the pillow that's been put there with super glue. <laughs> that's true. It's probably nailed down at this point. There we go. All right, Jim, last listener uh, email from UK DizDad. At Disney California Adventure on Mickey's Fun Wheel, there's a projector screen that's deployed before the show for projection. How does the screen get deployed on Mickey's face? My favorite theory at the moment is some sort of net-based projectile cannon but I'm hoping you can answer it. Actually, I love the idea, Jim, of Imagineers firing a giant projectile cannon to get that up there. In reality, uh, it's actually hoisted up like a banner. If you've ever seen it done before the show, Jim, I think it looks like the world's largest sports bra. (laughs) Okay. You guys can make up your mind. There's a YouTube video about it titled Setting Up World of Color Mickey's Fun Wheel Projection Screen on YouTube. Go ahead and take a look at it. I think it's only like a five-minute video, but... Uh, yeah, so the reality is they they ho- hoisted up on some cables, kind of like uh, I guess in the United States, the NFL does to nets during point after attempts in football games. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Well, it sounds like those folks who were there for the first show of Fantasmic. It's it's interesting to watch the whole Rivers of America area sort of unfold itself and become a place where you can present a nighttime extravaganza, and, and in much the same way, if you you know work out on uh, Pixar Pier Lagoon and watch the thing that it, it holds all of the the spigots and the lights coming up out of the bottom of the lagoon, or, or again, you know, the guys hoisting the giant sports bra. I'm going to have trouble getting that out of my head. <laughs> so. put, put, that on, put that on a resume, folks, if you're doing the job. Okay. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim's going to tell us the history of the American Adventure restaurant, the Liberty Inn, and other food restaurants around Epcot. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, we're recording this. It's almost lunchtime. Mm-hmm. No better thing to talk about than food, specifically at the world's greatest food theme park, Epcot. And you're going to tell us about all about the history of the Liberty Inn and other restaurants in Epcot's World Showcase, right? 
Yeah, though it's not all that surprising that when it came time to do a restaurant uh, at the American Adventure Pavilion at Epcot, that they opted to go with the most American foods, you know, the hot dogs, hamburgers, that sort of thing. And it certainly didn't hurt that Coca-Cola was the original sponsor. What's fascinating to me is how much thought the Imagineers put into placement when it came to where the restaurants wound up in Future World and World Showcase. And I shared a document with Len on Epcot, and I want to say, Len, that dates from like 81, early 1982 before the park opened. Yeah, I've actually never seen this before, but it's a uh, it's a list of all of the restaurants that were running on opening day, the kind of restaurant they were, so table service or counter service, mm-hmm. the number of seats, and then the hourly capacity. And I've never seen that before. Yeah, there's this amazing booklet that they prepared for anybody who went into food service at Epcot. And for example, they talk about in this book that the Imaginers, as they were laying out the park, they determined that the theme park's peak dining hours were going to be between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. and then again between 5 and 8. So I've seen the internal numbers uh, mm-hmm. from Disney. The, the peak time is actually 12.30, so it's almost exactly in the middle of that. Wow. Okay. Um, and then, so for lunch, and then it's uh, 6.30 for dinner. So yeah, they, they put 90 minutes on either side of that. At least back then, the idea was that Epcot had to be able to serve 6,000 people per hour. 6,000 an hour. Okay. (laughs) So 18,000 people for lunch in Epcot. Okay, sure. Yeah. And given the way the park was designed with the notion that people started their day in Future World and then late morning, early afternoon made their way over and started around World Showcase. So the whole notion was we don't want them dawdling in Future World. So with the exception of, I want to say the good turn the restaurant that spun around inside of uh, the Land Pavilion. Now it's Garden Grill. If you look then at the other four restaurants that Future World had, Farmer's Market in the Land Pavilion, the Stargate in Communicore, uh, Sunshine Terrace, also in Communicore, and the Odyssey, uh, those are all fast food places. And supposedly these four counter service places combined had an hourly capacity Len, for 5,400 guests. Okay. With quick service, it's all about how many registers you have open. Sure. That's the number of people you can pump through. And by the way, I, for years, I've looked at Odyssey and it's like, why is that still there? That's such a valuable piece of real estate. Shouldn't there be a, a future pavilion there? Shouldn't they have expanded internationally? It's like, no, it's, a, it's actually a really valuable piece of real estate for cast members because the back half of that quick service restaurant is actually the cast cafeteria for Epcot. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. So the notion is we want people to move quickly, at least from a food point of view, through Future World and then get over to Epcot. And then we start in Canada, Le Cellier. Mm-hmm. That's a buffeteria. And it is seating for 175 people. And what they figured was that means they have an hourly capacity of 280 people. Wow. Likewise, United Kingdom has the Rosen Crown, uh, which is table service. This is early Epcot numbers, so they don't have actual operations. But they believed, you know, for example, with Rosen Crown, table service, we have seating for 100, and our hourly capacity is 100. Because people are going to come in, they're going to get a drink, and they're going to sit down, and they're going to linger. All right, so let me me put these numbers in perspective, right? So Mm -hmm. the first couple of years that Epcot was open, annual attendance seems like it was around 8 million-ish. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of dropped off. So eight million ish uh, over the course of an entire year is around twenty two thousand people a day, right? Mm-hmm. So 
you know, when we say that the the lunch capacity is is six thousand or eight thousand people, or the the mm-hmm. restaurant capacity six thousand or eight thousand, that's out of the twenty two thousand that they project, mm-hmm. right? These days, I don't, I don't know that the capacity of individual restaurants has changed all that much, mm-hmm. but there's something like thirty four thousand people in the park on any given day. Oof. And we'll get to that point in a bit because, you know, Future World becoming the three different neighborhoods, World Celebration, World Nature, and uh, World Discovery. Discovery. And all of the permanent show kitchens, outdoor food booths, and that sort of thing that are yep. now. That has changed dining at Epcot. Almost by design, right? I mean, if you've got, if you if you built all this permanent infrastructure for restaurants, mm-hmm. right, and then attendance goes up by like 80% mm-hmm. over the course of, you know, 40 years. People aren't going to get into those original restaurants. You've still got to feed them, though. So that, that no, could no. be the reason why. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, but but at the same time, we've seen since 94 when, you know, the first flower and garden and then come 95, the first food and wine. You can literally watch attendance levels at Epcot creep up on the back of, you know, people like these festivals. They keep going back. Conversely, that because so many of the, the restaurants at Epcot were table service. In fact, there were only... Four fast food restaurants in all of World Showcase for opening day. There was the walk-up counter at the French Bakery Patisserie. Okay. There was the Cantina del San Angelo at the Mexico Pavilion. Still there. Downside, though, only had 50 seats. So their hourly capacity was uh, 100. There was the Yakitori House at the Japanese Pavilion. Okay. Same thing. It only had 100 seats. They figured they only had 200 capacity. Remember, though, most of those seats are outside. Inside, yeah. I think mm-hmm. there's, like, there's like 20 or 30 seats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's how they're getting the, outdoor, the hourly capacity of, uh, of 280. Okay, okay. Fair enough. And then there is the Liberty Inn at the American Adventure, which initially was designed for 560 seats. Wow. Okay. That's huge. Yeah. They actually crept that into 542 for opening day, I guess. By then, they'd done enough cast member previews, and it's like, it's a little tight in here. Let's get a couple of chairs out. But oh, that okay. meant that they were able to get 1,100 people an hour through there. It's their people eater for restaurants. Yeah. There's another thing that Liberty Inn here is servicing. And, and you know, we all have that relative or that friend who's the picky eater, yeah. who's not terribly adventurous. And you can't persuade, well, let's go get some you know, tempura at the Japanese building or a bratwurst in Germany. It's like, no, I want burger and fries. And and here was the place that offered burger and fries. And it's almost exactly halfway around World Showcase, so it's ideally positioned. This is another dual-purpose setup, just like the Odyssey. The back half is the snack bar for the Epcot employees who work on uh, you know, the World Showcase side of things. And if, if they couldn't, in fact, get all the way back to the official Epcot cafeteria, they at mm-hmm. least had this as a dining option. It's the fail-safe. That's great. Yeah. In the event of nuclear, nuclear war. Yeah, there the we go. End. All right. So, Jim, what was the menu when – you mentioned you know, burgers and hot dogs and stuff. Yeah. That was, was that the menu when – when Liberty Inn opened? Because it's not the menu that it was in effect when it closed, right? No. In fact, it was about 2013 that is kind of a, a secondary thing happening here that American Adventure, uh, because it hasn't been updated in a while, attendance is, is eroding. And right. when you're the restaurant that's at the exit of the attraction that isn't pulling as many people as it used to, you're just not doing the business that you, you were going to do. And also coupled with the fact that when you think about how many permanent outdoor kitchens there are around World Showcase right now. Oh, yeah, dozens. 
Yeah. So that suddenly, you know, it was a combination of the attraction we're attached to isn't as popular as it once was. We are competing with all of these show kitchens. We need to step up our game. So starting in 2013, 2014, the folks who handle foods at, at, or do the development of menus at uh, Disney parks and resorts, they began folding in regional foods to see hmm. if, well, maybe this will help turn things around. So starting in 2014, they folded in things like uh, Maryland crab cakes, Louisiana-style shrimp, and New York strip steaks. Ooh. The problem is you got to get, get people to buy this stuff. And by 2015, due to poor sales, the crab cakes and the Louisiana shrimp were off the menu. They also dropped a surf and turf burger. Uh, New York strip steak, though. Huh. Come 2016, the surf and turf is back, not as a burger, though, Len, but as a full meal. They also began offering a grilled buffalo chicken sandwich with bacon. And finally, it's March of 2017. Let's rejig the menu and see if this changes anything. And this is when they do a Cobb chicken salad sandwich, which I guess in the history of Disney theme parks was the messiest thing to eat. Yeah, how, say, would you, how would you eat a Cobb salad between slices of bread? It doesn't even make sense. So they try 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017. Yep. They try menu tweaks. They're giving it the old college try here. But it's just, it's not doing it, Len. And okay. remember when they started doing the grilling the hot dogs outside at the Liberty Tree Marketplace? Liberty I, was, I was there yesterday to check out the new seating. Yeah. Okay. It turns out that a lot of, you know, the sort of, testing of how would people respond to the smokeout project was actually done in Liberty Square. Oh, actually seeing, letting people see how they're cooked. Yeah, yeah. Oh, makes sense, makes sense. And they had that barbecue place the last couple of years mm -hmm. for the different festivals right next to the American Adventure. They probably looked at both of those and said, you yeah. know what people need here. Well, no, that's it exactly. And remember, the name of this place is the Regal Eagle Smokehouse Craft Drafts and Barbecue. You can read the menu now for the the walk-up uh, service window, and it yep. lists all of the, the craft beers that will be available there. They're, they're hoping a lot of thirsty dads who, at this point, are like, I think I need a break, just yeah. go. But <laughs> they decide, look, we can't keep putting Band-Aids on a heart condition. We need to totally reimagine the Liberty Inn as a place that you know is worth not only stopping at, you know, as you walk around World Showcase, but going out of your way to yep. experience. So they've leaned heavily into the regional food thing, but it's like Texas sliced brisket. They've got Kansas City smoked chicken, North Carolina chopped pork butt, you know, trying to get the best of barbecue, giving you a reason to go over there. As a connoisseur of North Carolina barbecue, I, I am eagerly anticipating seeing what they've uh, what they've done there. Yeah. <laughs> so there are, I'm, I'm guessing there are no vegan options on this. There's probably a salad somewhere. I was looking that over and it and again, especially these days at Disney, they try every menu has to have some sort of, of vegan type thing. I'll like I'll have to circle yeah. back on on those, but I mentioned it because I was over at Galaxy's Edge Ducking Me 7 on Sunday mm -hmm. and I had the plant-based kefta with hummus. And I think that's one of the best menu items in all of Walt Disney World quick services places. It's delicious and wow. it tastes just like beef. If you wouldn't have told me it was plant-based, I would never have guessed it. Yeah, that's so something you could throw on a, a menu like Regal Eagle as well. Well, anyway, um, Liberty Inn officially closes uh, July 8th, 2019. When you walk up to it now, Len, it's, it's 
the same, only different. They've respected the fact that it still has to fit with, you know, the American adventure, which was going to model after Jefferson's home and still look of a piece. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, they still had to accommodate the outdoor show kitchen element so people could watch their food being prepped. And it has to have enough of a presence that people are walking around World Showcase and it's like, well, what's that? Let's go check that out. Yeah. I think that uh, the fact that the, the smoker will be outdoors is definitely going to draw more people mm-hmm. in. That's pretty That's pretty clever. And at this point, I think we're only a couple of days out from at least the soft opening. I would think so, yeah. One question we keep getting over and over and over again why Sam the Eagle from the Muppets and got a hold of somebody can't name, but basically it's like, I'm a huge Muppet fan. It was a gimme. It, you know, we were doing the American adventure and, you know, a salute to all nations, but mostly America. It's Sam Eagle. I'm going to put Sam Eagle in this thing. And he kept it as it made its way through up the decision tree. He was just startled that nobody ever said no. It was just, no. of course. <laughs> You know, Sam the Eagle, almost by default. And I I was asking, okay, so are we going to see any retail for for Muppet fans? And he's like, first thing first, the restaurant has to be successful. Then we'll talk about retail. Because they've they've redone the retail place over at American Adventure to be Disney art. And that, to me, just screams like we couldn't think of anything else better to put here. There is supposedly an American Adventure redo being considered that's going to be number one it's going to be contentious yes. number two it's going to take forever simply because of the way that the attraction is constructed with the super complicated sets no absolutely they have pretty much resigned themselves to the fact that this is the project that comes online after the journey into imagination redo which is 2025 yeah i mean it's not going to be anytime anytime soon not only that but i mean okay, let's, let's say that you you agree with the premise that the script for American Adventure was written 40 years ago mm-hmm. and our view of American history is, has become more nuanced or changed mm-hmm. since then. What scenes do you pull out without offending someone? Yeah. That's entertainment, right? That's show business. If you drill down into the original presentation of Disney's America, the theme park that was going to be built in Prince William County mm. in Virginia – the show that was going to be presented there about immigration was actually going to feature the Muppets. They were going to to be the cast. Again, sort of the the, the one way to unify the story of immigration was by having the Muppets tell it. I have this uneasy feeling that if Sam's outside selling barbecue, maybe that may come back on the table. But at the same time, I'm kind of hoping not. All right, thanks for doing that. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish Show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Jim, we're still going through the Disney Music Series. You said we just posted the last one. Yep. The American Adventure ties in well with this. Mm-hmm. Also, you can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me at TouringPlans.com. On next week's show, Jim talks about how Disney built Remy's Ratatouille Adventure at Epcot. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's interpreting Joy Division's Substance album, live at this weekend's Northwest College Jazz Festival in beautiful Powell, Wyoming. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.